Hi, I'm Priyanka. And I'm Lexis. This is Incubation, Incubation Time. So we were on a summer hiatus, mm-hmm. in very intentional yeah. summer hiatus. Um, I don't know. It's been a lot of traveling, a lot of weddings this summer mm-hmm. to go to. People are getting married left, right, and center. And then um, just getting back on research, yeah, figuring out my project. We're third years now. I know. That's scary. <laughs> we have to do nothing but research. We don't have any classes left. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was most of my summer. I think August was really when I came back fully and like started settling down and hunkering down. Mm-hmm. But what about you? Um, I went to Colorado this summer, so I was able to like get out for a little bit, and uh, we went to Breckenridge. And sometimes I think people just really in grad school dig themselves so deep in a hole and they're working 60 hour weeks and they don't take time to enjoy their summers because after your first year you really do not have a summer and so getting out and actually just having time to see something that isn't flat (laughs) is amazing yeah it's not lab (laughs) yeah and it definitely rejuvenated me for coming back to lab for fall Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So what, before we go into it, was, what was your favorite trip this summer that you did? Ooh, we did a lot. So we saw, we went to Nashville, we went down to Austin. Oh we gosh. were in, um, I went to Florida for a little bit. I went down to Galveston with my lab for a lab retreat, um, which listeners, that's not a normal thing a lot of labs do, but a decent number of labs do it yeah. nowadays. No, I think it depends on the size too. Like if you yeah. have a sizable lab, you will go, you're You'll figure out a way to go on a lab retreat. Yeah. So we just, our whole lab went down to the beach. Um, my boss taught us how to surf. That was definitely a highlight of the summer was my boss teaching me how to surf. That's definitely not something I signed up for, but it was totally worth it. Uh, I think my favorite trip all summer must might have been Nashville, mm-hmm. partly because it was a all-expenses-paid trip by the <laughs> family that we were, it was a bachelorette party we mm-hmm. went for. And it was just really fancy, and we don't normally travel travel like that, so yeah. it was just a really unique experience for us to get to do. I mean, if you can go anywhere all expenses paid, <laughs> even if it's to, like, San Antonio or something, yeah. that is, like, a great trip to go on. Yeah. I can't imagine going to Nashville. I haven't been. I've been to Memphis, but Nashville is, like, on my list of places to go. Oh, I think you definitely like it. Mm-hmm. Any big news on the research front before we get into the topic of our podcast today? Um, I have my first committee meeting in like a week and a half. That's exciting. So exciting. Who, so for your committee, how did you go about picking it for anybody that might be thinking grad school and is like overwhelmed by, they have to go through the qualifying process and then they have to pick a committee because that's kind of daunting is that's the people that are going to decide if you graduate or not. So who, how did you go about picking who was on your committee? So I sat down and talked with my PI, um, and I had a few names of who I liked based on my qualifying exam process. Mm-hmm. So I actually picked my qualifying exam chair. And then my PI and I kind of just listed names from every field that my research touches. So we mm-hmm. made sure I had one biophysics professor, 
I made sure I had one professor who was very cell bio heavy and mm-hmm. then one professor who knew Cielgens, worms. Yeah. Um, and so I have one from each and then my own PI. That's and so awesome. we kind of, we made sure it balanced out well. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So that's the big thing that I'm doing. And then I got antibodies this year, which that's was expensive. <laughs> it was expensive. We made them. So we made antibodies to my protein, which means I can now do Western blots, which I couldn't do before. That so. poor rabbit. That poor rabbit. It's <laughs> what they're bred for. It's okay. <laughs> oh gosh. That's what about funny. you? What are your big updates lab wise? Big updates. I picked my call or my committee and I don't have a meeting until mid November just because I gave them a bunch of options. And that's kind of where I thought I could get a lot of my stuff together. Uh, I actually picked my committee based on my project that I did while I was qualifying. And then maybe two weeks later after I picked everybody, I took a left turn, complete 180 from like what my research was because I have a side project that I've been doing and it just blew up and it's an amazing project. And so we kind of are going down that route now. And now I'm stuck with like, I, everybody on my committee is a genius, but now the people I picked for my committee were more for nuclear receptor work and the nucleus and different types of shuttling mechanisms. And now I have a amino acid based research and intestinal stuff like that lifespan aging and no one on my committee is really um kind of an expert in that so that's going to be an interesting proposal to them I'm like hey you came for the nucleus let's stay for the peptides (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah but other than that in June 130th I was awarded my F31 and so that is really exciting because I put a lot of effort into it I got denied on my first try I got accepted on my second one right after I qualified I think that was a big thing was they wanted to see that I had qualified and stayed in the lab and so that's just kind of a burden off my plate even though I would have been funded but now it's like okay yeah now you got a nice little resume thing too you got a it's an NIH grant it's a a boost for sure yeah I wanted postdoc anywhere it's really good to have that on there for sure so for people listening the grant that Lexus got it's an NIH grant for graduate students that Mm -hmm. a lot of people do apply to Mm -hmm. in their first few years and it's a big one I mean how many pages did it end up being when you were done uh 67 pages (laughs) and the thing is about it is Probably 59 of them are just accessory details. It's like letters of intent or recommendation. And then you literally have to put down how much desk space you have and what kind of computer you use and all this stuff. Yeah, how much space you have on your bench and everything. And they need every detail of it or else they're not going to fund you. And they look for every reason not to fund you Mm -hmm. if you don't submit this one accessory detail. So you need to be... diligent about everything else that's not just your research strategy and proposal but probably the the research aspect of it was about six pages okay mm-hmm. about the size of our quals yeah. proposal as exactly. well very cool mm-hmm. so today's woman in science segment i'm going to be talking about christiane volhard and so she is actually the aunt of one of the Nobel Prize winners from this round. And so I want you to guess who you think the Nobel Prize winner is um, that she's the aunt for. And so Christiane Volhard is a German developmental biologist. She won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1995. And she's actually the only woman in Germany to have won a Nobel Prize in the sciences, which is just crazy. 
And so she got her PhD in 1974 for studying protein-DNA interactions. She won the Lasker Award in 91, which preceded her Nobel Prize in 95. And she got her Nobel Prize in the research on genetic control of the embryonic development. And so she is just an awesome female in science. Take a guess at whose aunt you think it is for one of our prize winners today. All right, Pri, so what is your science news of the week that you're going to share with the audience? So it's been a long summer, and I realized I could pick a lot of things that happened this summer, but I actually decided to pick something that happened just this week. Um, and it was, it kind of got buried in some of the news mm-hmm. because there was the news about the COVID drug and just a lot of vaccine news about boosters. But buried in all of that was the fact that there is now a vaccine against malaria. It's so awesome. I mean, this is something that researchers have been trying to get at for years. I'm, I mean, years and years and years. This is the, you know, pinnacle of vaccine research um, has been trying to get a malaria vaccine. And the reason it's so hard is because malaria is a parasite. Mm-hmm. It's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It's pretty large compared to viruses and bacteria. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to develop a vaccine against it because it's really hard for your own immune system to find one spot on that parasite to attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they've done over the years is researchers all over the world, and in fact, I worked with some of them at the NIH. I mean, there were some vaccine malaria researchers in our building. Mm-hmm. Their whole thing is about trying to find the right antigen to give to your body in vaccine form so you develop immunity. Most of them fail. This is the first vaccine to make it through phase three trials. So I'll give you a brief background of how this happened. Basically, the base, best preventative that countries have for... By countries... So I mainly mean the continent of Africa because 94% of all lethal malaria cases in the world are in Africa. The best preventative measure that they have right now are mosquito nets. And there's been massive mosquito net distribution projects and efforts for... I mean, I remember learning about it in school when I was growing up. It's Hmm. been around for decades, and that only cuts disease by about 20%. Now, this vaccine, compared to what we know about COVID efficacy, this number is not going to sound very impressive, but it cuts about 40% in children, which doesn't sound that great, but is huge for malaria. Because you can get bitten, and then a few weeks later that kid will die with very quick symptom appearance. So the vaccine is called Muscurix. Muscurix. It's like a play on mosquito, but Rix at the end. Um, That's what sells. Is it an X at the end? R-I-X. R-I-X, yeah. No, I was was in a pharmacology class one time, and they Uh were saying that they sell a lot of drugs with X's, Z's, or Q's in it because it just looks more attractive. Does it really? Yeah, no, I'm serious. Interesting. And that could have been, like, complete conspiracy that some (laughs) professor was telling me, but I was like, that makes so much sense. Everything has an X in it. But then we can't pronounce any of them. You can say my name. It has an X in it. That's true, but how many drug (laughs) names can you say? True. True. (laughs) Interesting. Well, so this one is given in four doses, and so far, 2.3 million doses have already been administered during this clinical trial. Um, They can give it, the main thing is for kids. So this vaccine is being developed for children, Mm -hmm. and it's given to kids between six weeks and 17 months of age. And there are five species of malaria parasites. This one only immunizes you against the most prevalent and the most deadly. 
Um, so it's still like that's part of the reason it's only forty percent effective is because there's four other species of parasite out there. It it affects the malaria parasite really really early on in the life cycle, so it actually prevents it going to the liver at all, mm-hmm. um, which is where it does most of its damage. And the study on this vaccine actually dates all the way back to 1987. So this group, um, GlaxoSmithKline, which is the company that made it, mm-hmm. and then Walter Reed Naval Academy up in Bethesda, uh, collaborated to find the right surface antigen from malaria, and they actually paired it to a hepatitis B surface antigen. Interesting. Because there's something about the malaria antigens that prevent them from being recognized by the immune system that's why it takes like four doses and that's why people can get malaria so many times before they even develop any kind of immunity on their own but pairing it with hep b actually made your immune system chew up the whole antigen at once Mm -hmm. and then gave it immunity against that as well yeah i mean it makes sense like find something that your body is gonna see right away Mm -hmm. and pair it with something that it's not gonna see and kind of evade and then you have a double whammy yeah, and so now these kids, it also works as a hepatitis B vaccine, even though they do say it's not a replacement for a regular yeah. hep B vaccine. Wow. And so the phase three testing has been going on since 2009. Mm-hmm. So from 2009 to 2014, they've been testing it. And just this week, the WHO endorsed it and mm-hmm. said that they highly recommend that countries distribute it's, it's really cool. I, this could very well be up for a Nobel Prize yeah. in a few years. I mean, this is a huge milestone. That's really awesome. And it just goes to show that, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's simple because nothing in science is simple, but it is simple to target a virus compared to a parasite. Yeah. And so when people are like, well, kind of thinking about how quickly we were all able to make this COVID vaccine, it just needs to be really emphasized that viruses are way different than parasites and so getting a vaccine for a virus is going to be way quicker it's really cool awesome stuff so do you want to get into our nobel podcast yeah this is kind of our anniversary podcast i know our first big episode last year was also nobel um i'm really excited Mm -hmm. we have some cool topics to talk about so we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back Okay, so let's get into our Nobel Prize episode. Um, you and I track this very closely. We wake up first thing in the morning, we look at the Nobel Prize announcement, yep. so we text each other about it. Yep. Um, so the winners of the Physiology or Medicine Prize were David Julius and Artem, I do not know how to pronounce his name, Patap- Patapushian? Patapushian. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's close enough. You know, he gets a lot of money. I don't think he cares how people pronounce his name at this point. He's not listening to this podcast. He's not listening to our podcast. Um, So they won for their discoveries of thermal and mechanical transducers. So I'm going to break this down for you. Um, And I'm doing doing two parts because they both actually won for two completely separate processes. Yeah. But what's the overall processy? How our cells detect two different kinds of external stimuli. Okay. So... External stimulus and brain stuff, brain stuff, I say, um, is something that we've kind of known for a while. You know, we know how our body responds to touch and to heat, and we kind of had an idea that there are different sensors in our nerves, but what's never been known is how do those sensors work? Because on a cellular level, nerves conduct signal, we know that, Mm -hmm. 
but they have to receive some kind of stimulus. Yeah. And usually that stimulus is a signaling molecule. So for example, when we feel pain, we're receiving a signal from a molecule that goes to a pain receptor. Mm -hmm. And if we are blocking that pain, we're blocking the pain receptor. And then you don't feel pain. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the, the two kinds of stimuli that were kind of a bit of a mystery were um, thermal heat and then touch. So how do you sense pressure or pain on your hand if you're touching something? So do they ever work together? Because I feel like at some point, heat turns to pain if you touch a stove. And so ah, are you so going to bring that up? I'm going to okay. bring that up. So they do, they do collaborate, I think, later on in their careers. But the stories actually start very differently. So the first story is about um, heat. Now, there's two ways to talk about heat. There's um, physical heat which is no, called non-noxious stimuli in this context. Okay. So it's just like heat from a stove, heat from a fire. And noxious, what would that be? So noxious stimuli would be something that you get heat from that has sensory at things. So spices. Okay. Yeah. So capsaicin. Oh. So like when you eat like a hot wing. Yeah. That's a non-noxious. Or that that's is a noxious. noxious. That's a noxious. So the interesting thing about that is that, you know, way back in the day in like... The 1950s, I think. I say way back in the day, but like in that the was 1950s. Long. That was a long time ago for science. <laughs> they were able to show that, you know, when you ate something spicy, you sweat and your um, body responded in a, the same way as if you were in a hot room. Yeah. And so scientists thought that there must be something similar between your heat receptors and your spice receptor. Mm -hmm. So the something, so scientists wanted to find out what what is receiving the signal for capsaicin? So capsaicin is the molecule in spicy food that makes you feel like it's Even spicy. Even the ghost pepper? Yeah. So how do they all taste different then? Those are probably the other like food okay. molecules okay. in there. But the but capsaicin it's the itself thing. is the spice. Okay. Yeah. So um, the question then was, what are your nerves receiving when you receive capsaicin into your body? Because it's clearly not just taste. It's yeah. doing something different to you. So this is where David Julius comes in. He was at UC San Francisco, and he wanted to find the receptor for capsaicin. So in order to do that, he did something very simple that we do in science quite a bit when we're looking for an unknown receptor, which is you knock down a bunch of receptors. <laughs> so, Sounds familiar. So what he did was he takes a set of cells that are, you know, sensitive to capsaicin, he knocks down a whole library of DNA. So when you say knockdown, what does that mean? So a knockdown basically means that you put something into the cell that prevents a certain protein from being expressed. Okay. So you can create a library of like 60 different genes. Yeah. And those diff 60 different genes will be individually knocked down. Okay. In those cells. And then, so you try to break the cell basically. Yeah. So when he found the one cell that was broken, so the one cell that didn't receive a capsaicin signal anymore, mm -hmm. he then took that cell, looked at which gene they knocked down, and was like, okay, so that gene plays a role mm -hmm. in receiving capsaicin. So those, he did a lot of those experiments, and they found a receptor that they called TRP. Um, don't even ask me what it stands for. It's really boring. Um, but they found this receptor. And so in science, there's two very important things we do when we want to prove that something does something. We need to break it and we need to fix it. 
So they already did the breaking it where they knocked it down in the cells Mm -hmm. and then they needed to fix it. So they added that receptor to a cell that didn't already have it and showed that that cell responded to capsaicin. It's a beautiful sign. It's so simple too. It's It's, so simple. It's, it's the, it's the thing that we aspire to. It's the kind of experiment that we wish happens. Um, so they were able to make cells, by the way, these are like kidney cells. So they're not even neuro cells, neural cells. And you make kidney cells respond to capsaicin just by adding this one receptor. That is proof beyond a doubt Mm -hmm. that this receptor is the receptor for capsaicin. Or is it proof or is it just cannot be disproven? It it basically can't be disproven at that point. Um, so they also then showed that that capsaicin signal was blocked if they blocked the receptor with an antagonist, with like another molecule. Yeah. So they used a drug, um, probably just some kind of pain drug or something like that, and they were able to block the capsaicin signal That's... in that cell. So that was their first like big discovery. And the very cool thing that they found... So can you tell us real quick what patch clamp experiments are because they did a lot of those i did patch clamping in two labs i did before committing to my thesis laboratory and so patch clamping is basically well i'll I'll tell you the experiment we did so it kind of shows everything or every aspect of it what we did in my old lab for my reu was that you extracted neurons out of an eyeball so we would extract neurons we would get it all the way down until there was one little neuron. out of what eyeball a mouse eyeball <laughs> thank you for clarifying <laughs> yeah yes not out of a human eyeball so out of a mouse eyeball we got one singular neuron it took a lot of different types of techniques we got that neuron you put it into a plate and now you're under a microscope and with this microscope you have a you're inside this faraday cage because you're looking at a lot of different types of electrical signals and so you have to have some type of thing that will prevent you from getting outside signals because there's a lot of noise basically what you have is a really 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 thin glass needle And so you pull a needle so that it's so thin, it can go through the membrane of a neuron. And what you do then is you can inject stuff into that neuron and see if it's gonna give out an electrical pulse. And you can measure that based on different types of things you have hooked up to the cell or what you have around. Or so you have an electrode that's in the medium, you have your electrode that is now in the cell. And so once you hit it with that pulse, you can get a electrical impulse on a graph. You can now put drugs into it and you can block these electrical impulses. You can read calcium signals. There's a bunch of different things you can look at. And that's just for if you take a nerve or any type of neuron and want to do uh, patch clamping with that. Okay. So they did a lot of those experiments with these to be able to measure signals Mm -hmm. when they were giving them different stimuli. The very cool thing about this was, so they were using capsaicin, which is spice, but they found that this receptor for capsaicin responded to thermal heat as well. So they were able to activate it above 40 degrees centigrade. Which is when our regular heat sensors get activated. Because what is body temperature? 37. Yeah, 37. 37. 37. So they can increase um, the temperature and then activate the signal. And they were like, this is crazy. This is both a like sensory signal and a heat signal. Mm -hmm. It makes, it's so unique. And so this one sensor, this one receptor was extremely unique. And, you know, that was the big discovery there. 
Then they also found, so think about, when you think about like noxious heat, now that we know that, you know, capsaicin is noxious heat, what are some other foods that you would classify as noxious heat? Other foods? Yeah. Or like other molecules in the foods? Other foods, just in general. Um, jalapenos? That's still a spice. Oh, okay. Um, Indian food. That's still spice. spice. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> food that is noxious heat? Uh, this is difficult. I feel like everything's a spice. So I'm going to tell you the list of things that this receptor responds to, mm-hmm. and it's going to make total sense. Wait, wait, wait. Let me try one more time. Okay. Um, is it possibly sour stuff? Like, no. No? Okay. I guess I give up. Okay. Horseradish, oh. cinnamon, garlic, oh. cloves, oh. and ginger. Okay. I love garlic and ginger. I'm not a fan of cinnamon. Makes sense. I have a mutant TRP channel. (laughs) (laughs) But that's crazy, right? Because then you hear those things and you think about it. Yeah, cinnamon kind of burns if you smell it. Yeah. And like you just take a mouthful of cinnamon. Yeah, it can be really overstimulating. And like even things like horseradish, we think of these foods as being like they burn when you smell them. And it makes sense now. These are causing noxious heat. Okay, so are these receptors in your nose as well as on your tongue or? I don't know. They actually don't talk about the physiology of where they are, probably because these researchers were focused on like Mm -hmm. the actual molecules themselves. Yeah, true. Um, so I'm not really Too sure much about science that. for that. <laughs> yeah. But I'd imagine it's probably, you know, eyes, nose, yeah. mouth. Everything that makes your breath stink, it probably goes through this channel. That's there you really go. what it is. So that was really cool for me to find out too, that there's like other molecules in these foods that activate this exact same pathway. Huh. Um, so that was noxious heat. They then did the same thing with noxious cold. So what would you guess is a noxious cold molecule? Noxious cold. Yeah, I had to think about this for a little bit. I was like, started reading. I was like, okay, I want to guess what noxious cold would be. So something that makes you feel cold. Mm-hmm. When you eat it or smell it. Um, mint. Exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. So they use menthol. Yeah. And menthol binds another receptor that's a family in this same receptor that makes your body respond in the same way that it does to cold signals. Hmm. So the second receptor they found activates below 28 degrees centigrade, mm. and it also activates with menthol. So these are two different receptors now. Yes, but they're part of the same family. Okay, so it's like TRP1 and TRP2 type eight, of thing. Yeah, two, oh. one and eight. Okay. Yeah. So the finding of these two receptors kind of kicked off a whole field of finding these receptors that respond to sensory stimuli in a physical manner. That's like the coolest research, honestly. It's so cool. I wish I was doing that research. That is, it was really cool reading how it like progressed like that. Um, so they found noxious heat, noxious cold. Now jump over to Ardem, who's at Scripps in California. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of my grandpa. Explain us how that's okay. possible. I say that because my first rotation lab, the PI I was working for, she just came from his lab maybe two years earlier. And a lot of the publications that kind of led up to this research, he's like one of the first authors on. So she... You're two degrees of separation I'm from two degrees of separation from the Nobel Prize winner. Nice. And yeah, I feel... I'm pretty proud to say that I worked in her lab <laughs> for a whole summer. That is really cool. Um, so this one will be, it'll be a little shorter, but basically they have a cell line that... Um, when you poke the plasma membrane, which mm-hmm. you can just do with like a glass 
you know, pipette or something. And that's a different version of patch clamping, like I was talking about, is we had a membrane and you'd poke it with the needle. Yeah, so that's what mm-hmm. they did here. They just poked it and they were able to induce a current with mechanical force. Mm-hmm. And so they did the same thing. You know, they knocked down a bunch of genes, found what took away that signal, and then added that gene to a different cell line and found that they could make kidney cells respond to a physical touch. That's interesting because, like, kidney cells are just completely encapsulated in your body. Exactly. So that's hard to disprove. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they did that and they found a receptor that responded to physical touch. And the cool thing about it is once they kind of discovered the um, structure of the receptor. Oh, it's huge. Not only is it huge, but it's got these arms that sit on the plasma membrane. Mm -hmm. So when the plasma membrane is like plump, like in a cell, the arms kind of face down a little bit. And then when you push on the membrane of the cell, the arms move. And the movement of the arms causes the receptor to be activated. And that's what gives you mechanical sensing. Yeah. It's so cool that our, our cells have these... They... Everything is a receptor. It's just they're all activated in different ways. Proteins are conscious. <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> I, I have one thing to say to that. Is <clears throat> I, the lab I worked in did in these piezo research, and that's the protein name. And the, they're huge proteins, but they call those arms propellers. Mm. And that is what, that's what the technical term is that they use when they talk about this <laughs> in labs. So a lot of some research that people are doing is, can you cut off these at certain amino acids and will they still give the same type of uh, kind of response Mm. depending on how much? Because it's like they don't know what is necessary versus sufficient to actually have this molecule work or this protein work. Yeah, because this research was just establishing that it works. Uh Um, And then I won't go into more of the science, but what's cool to me is where these receptors are in our bodies because this ex- then explains like different kinds of mechanical force even within our bodies. So aside from being like on our fingers and that kind of thing, they are on our lungs and they actually mm-hmm. protect our lungs from overinflation. Because oh. at a certain point of mechanical force, the cells stop expanding. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also in our GI tract Makes to prevent sense. you know either overinflate, like you filling your stomach too much or something. Mm-hmm. Um, they're present in our red blood cells and. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy to learn that there are like neural signal molecules in red blood cells, but they exist there to prevent the red blood cells from just overinflating. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess at a certain like angle of the propellers, Mm -hmm. the cell will stop collecting oxygen, basically. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really revolutionary was finding like neural receptors that were present in non-neural cells. Yeah. Um, so touch perception goes beyond. So the two big takeaways, when you're eating spicy food, you are actually activating things that resemble heat, which is why you feel like it's so hot. Yeah. Um, when you eat mint, that sensation of cold in your mouth actually is your body receiving a cold signal. That's so cool. I know. We're nerding out. It's probably (laughs) not cool to other people, but it's it's so cool to think about. Um, and then touch is not just on your fingers. Your body relies on mechanical force just to maintain equilibrium wow. every day. Wow. And that was health and human um, medicine and physiology. And you'd think that because we are humans and we have the genome sequenced as of 2000 that we would know this stuff. Every time there's a prize, I'm like, it's weird that we never knew this. There's so much we don't know about science. It's so vast, yet... 
they're, I mean, everything just seemed, I don't even know. Everything is so cool. I know. And I'm that's nerding out. I need to not nerd out right now. This is why there's going to be Nobel Prizes for, like, till the end of time, basically, because there's always something new for us to figure out. Yeah, yeah. All right, Lexis, your turn. Tell us about chemistry. All right, so the chemistry prize for this year was given to Benjamin List and David W.C. McMillan, and it was for the discovery and kind of synthesis of asymmetric organocatalysts. And so that is a mouthful for anybody that has never taken an or like a, an advanced organic chemistry class because I don't even think people talk about it in normal organic. No, or o- I never heard of o- it. Ochem one or ochem two. Yeah. But luckily, my favorite professor from my undergrad, she gave us the option to take a like shortened um, semesters worth of advanced organic chemistry, and so I was like, that sounds fun, like a challenge. I'm gonna do it. Basically, a masochist, but <laughs> like. So asymmetric, let's just, I'm going to break apart the title so that we can understand this better. So asymmetry just means that things are not the same. They're not symmetric. So if you look at your hands, they look identical. However, they are not the same if you overlay them. They're Mm -hmm. asymmetric in a way where they're mirrored to each other. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about asymmetry in this prize. So think about your hands. Okay, you put them on top of each other and your thumbs point out at each side. However, if you put them together, then they look the same. Now, organo, when you talk about organic chemistry, it just means the science behind the carbon molecule. And so carbon, nitrogen, a bunch of different things, but it's all centered around something that has a carbon atom in it. Okay. And then catalyst, when we talk about catalyst, There are, and I have this great example that I'm going to give to you just because catalyst is a weird word and not a lot of people probably that, not a lot of people understand it if they're not just in science. So when you're thinking about making a cake, right, you can't just put the box of cake mix in the oven and then think a cake is going to come out of it. Really? That's not how you make it? That's not how you make it. So so you have chemical reactions. You have Mm -hmm. reactions that happen. And so you go from step one, you open the box. Step two, you pour the mix into a, a bowl, okay? And then you have a series of reactions until you get to finally putting it in the oven and making a cake. Mm-hmm. And so that's a chemical reaction. But those individual steps don't happen by themselves. Okay. There is a catalyst, and the catalyst is you as a person. So you are making the box open with your hands, mm-hmm. and you are putting it into the bowl. That is a like, catalytic reaction. Okay. And so you are aiding in every step. And the reason why catalysts are so big is because there's a million different catalysts in human cells. Mm -hmm. And those are also called enzymes. If you're talking about proteins, they're called enzymes. If you're talking about molecules, they're called catalysts. Same name or different name, but same concept. And so there's a bunch of different things that happen. But if we want to be able to make this as a large scale thing... Mm -hmm like make drugs because you can't just have one molecule and then all of a sudden you get a drug. You have to build it some way. Yeah. You have to have really specific catalysts in a grand scheme. You have okay. to have it for a factory's worth to be able to make a bunch of medicine. So making an asymmetric organocatalyst and having that discovery mm-hmm. has led us to a bunch of different pharmaceuticals, uh, lots of different drugs, and even all the molecules that go into running shoes, which I thought was super interesting. Oh, cool. They talked about running right in the first intro paragraph. It was 
there's a lot of different carbon fiber plates that they're putting into running shoes now, and that oh, is due to cool. asymmetric organocatalysts. Wow. So they're literally all over the world. I talked about kind of what a chemical reaction is, what catalysts are. They just really speed up a reaction. Okay, yeah. So when we're talking about asymmetric organocatalysts, this is where it gets really cool. Okay. So nature, naturally, has these molecules that look like your hands. Uh, but they're never made in the same amount. Right. right? Yeah. They favor like they one favor version one over, over the other. other. So think about it in the way that the, you have a right-handed person and a left-handed person. Right. And ninety or eighty-eight to ninety percent of the whole world population is right-handed, and twelve percent is left-handed. Mm-hmm. But with these catalysts, these asymmetric organocatalysts, it would allow if say there was a mighty catalyst that could choose everything, <laughs> it would allow for that to get put into a situation and now we have 100% lefties oh, or okay. 100% righties yeah. because it has made this reaction so specific that it can determine which one it wants to favor in nature over the other. Okay. And so you're not getting a mixed reaction. And that's basically what this prize is about is finding Mm -hmm. these two molecules that are just organic molecules they kind of look like amino acids they're pretty cool they kind of look like proline okay and taking that and now you're able to make a reaction specific for one over the other one molecule over the other so depending on which version you use like left-handed or right-handed you're able to promote a certain reaction yeah Oh, cool. So you don't need like a bunch of different catalysts. You can mm-hmm. just use one type of the catalyst. Yeah. And I mean, mixing it with other things, but this helps favor one over the other in, okay. in high yield amount where you don't have to be concerned about anything else. Okay. And so there's a way, there's a bunch of other things that this can apply for. And so there's this one molecule called limonin <laughs> kind of sounds like lemon but it's limonin oh see i saw lemon in the like yeah, description that's what, like, what, is, what does lemon have to do with it yeah so this that's exactly what, so they have this molecule called limonin okay and there is an s version of it and that would be like the left-handed version right and then there's an r version of it so r limonin which would be like the right-handed version and so s limonin that molecule smells like lemon does okay. it really? It smells like lemon. And cool. the R version of it smells like oranges. <gasps> and so if you uh, want to so make cool. a lemon candy, all right, you want 100% lemon. You don't want any oranges to mess up your lemon. Uh-huh. You're going to use a specific organocatalyst that came out of this research to promote that reaction to happen over the orange reaction. Okay. So that is basically what this project is, um, this Nobel Prize is about. I just wanted to keep it in as simplest terms as possible because there is a lot of nerdy chemistry I could nerd out on. Yeah. But for the listeners to understand it as good as, like, as well as possible, that is something that is, I mean, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so that elegant. Cool. Uh, and just to kind of talk more about the importance of catalysts in science Mm -hmm. there has been seven nobel prizes in chemistry for catalysts since 1909 and so this is the seventh that is out here and it's they're used so highly in pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. so that we're not getting one tiny molecule that's the r version over the s version that could be deadly in some way like this has helped really prevent anything that happens also it has a lot to do with green chemistry because now you can just take one catalyst put it into a reaction and you're making 100 percent of what you want instead of you having to now filter out what you don't want throw it to the side yep purify and do a bunch of different reactions to now 
keep going, keep going, and getting that final 100% yield. Right. So and you get lower yield every time. Yeah, exactly. So that is really cool. These two guys, Benjamin List, he's from the Max Planck Institute and nice. or Max Planck Institute in Germany. Germany. He is the director for um, the Institute for Coal Research. Hmm. And then we have Dave McMillan, David McMillan, who is a researcher at Princeton. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and so... Basically, a lot of this research came out in the early 2000s, and now they're kind of showing just how prevalent they are in pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. and that's why it came to a head here right now in 2021. Very cool. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So. Um, the uh, One of the physics prize people also were from the Max Planck Institute, so like mm-hmm. Max Planck had a big year this year. <laughs> they did. I mean, it's a, an amazing institute. It really there is. Are, uh, geniuses work there, and so oh, yeah. that would honestly be an... Uh, great place to get a postdoc to do mm-hmm. research because there's so much history there with science that I mean, it's literally named after yeah. the guy who has a constant named after him <laughs> in math and science so like exactly <laughs> but, that's the kind of people you're dealing with so there's, there's kind of a side tangent there's this website where you can go and see your science lineage like, oh, really? Yeah, so, like, if I put in my professor, my PI's name, it will show you, like, who his PI was, who uh-huh. that PI graduated, so, like, his siblings now, like, my PI's siblings. Right. And then it has my PI's, like, father. Yeah. And then it will have that PI's father, so it's now, like, my PI's grandfather. She's saying father with quotes. <laughs> yes, it's all quotes. Like, it could be mothers, or it's just grandfathered in. Science fathers and science, science mothers. Science fathers and science mothers. And so... It can bring you all the way back, and I was looking through mine with uh-huh. my, not my graduate school PI, but my undergrad PI that I had, Yeah, and it brought me all the way back to Max Planck. No like, way! the researcher. Because I need to do that. That's it's fun. so much of a lineage, and it, like, not even just the institute, it brought me back to, like, that main guy. That's awesome. And so you're like, wow. I'm related to all these researchers. This is like Ancestry.com, but for scientists. It is Ancestry.com for scientists. So it I is. should do that. That'd be really fun. Yeah. It's, Send me the website. Yeah, I will. I, I'll have to look for it again. Just look up, like, scientists. Yeah. Tweet. We, we can post it in our show notes, and then other scientists who listen to this can look up their lineage yeah. as well. That'd yeah. be fun. Mm-hmm. Just hope that, like, your family updates. <laughs> your science family <laughs> updates their lineage, or else you're not going to get accurate readings. Oh, yeah. If you have a PI that, like, barely has a website, then you'll probably not. Yes. Most not PIs in the world. <laughs> Okay, so the physics prize this year, we're not going to talk about it a lot, but basically it was won by uh, three people, and the first two share half the prize, and the third person shares half the prize, and the main takeaway for why they won the prize was it's the model that we've all learned in high school growing up was the greenhouse gas model of, you know, uh, you get more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it warms your surface which causes more water vapor to rise which causes more warming yeah that model was the man the um um saikuro manabe from japan well he was working at princeton in the at the time two princeton Um, prizes then yes this year and And two two max Max Planck. Planck. that's amazing um and then klaus hasselman also won for uh determining weather versus climate Mm -hmm. um and being able to so one thing i will say about this which i really liked the analogy was back in the day we didn't think we could predict climate because we didn't think we could predict weather which we can't we can't really tell what's happening in weather beyond like 10 days um everything's based on 
past patterns. And so people get pissed at their weatherman so often. (laughs) Exactly. And so one of the main analogies they used was if a dog is walking, Mm -hmm. the dog will run all over the place. And if you look at each micro movement of the dog, um, it will not give you a pattern. You can't actually tell if the dog's moving or not, but if you look at the dog over a length of time, you can tell the dog's walking down the street. Yeah. And so that's the difference between weather and climate. Climate is the dog walking from the home to the dog park, whereas weather is the dog going off to sniff a tree, going off to sniff a pole. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the second winner, Klaus Hauselman, won because he was able to connect, he was able to build algorithms to determine what weather changes are occurring as like natural deviations from the norm and what things are beyond natural deviations. So you need weather for a climate prediction? Yes. Okay, you can't yes. just have it without it. Yes, and he was able to kind of show how much impact humans have had on that weather change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though your weather changes day to day, he's able to build this algorithm. It was like a 3D graph that shows you temperature change, year, and like um, predicted temperature change. Mm-hmm. So based on the model, you know how much the temperature should have changed, yeah. but this is how much it actually did. So it tells you what amount of it is humans, human cause. Okay. Um, and then same thing with the whole carbon dioxide model was him being able to predict like this much extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will cause this much degree rise. Mm-hmm. And we know this. We've heard this, yeah. you know, for the last like five, ten years now. And these are the men who actually devised those models to begin with. Okay, so would you say that this has a lot to do with how scientists are predicting climate change? Yeah, it does. Okay. The whole, like... So I will say, it's it doesn't have a ton to do with the impacts of climate change. That's mm-hmm. not what this is. Yeah. This is just being able to predict climate change to begin with. Yeah, So because that would be pretty divisive if they mm-hmm. said, this is what is predicting climate change. Or, like, that, like that's this is the reason why... Right. So it's, yeah, it's two different things. It's like mm-hmm. environmentalists go from here's what's actually happening and here's what it'll do to us. Mm-hmm. In the, but the physicists are concerned with patterns, algorithms, and the math of it. Yeah. So they're concerned with this is how the numbers of CO2 will affect the numbers of degrees of heating. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not telling us what that degree of heating will do. Yeah. They're just telling us it'll happen or yeah. it's been happening. Which is pretty smart. I feel yeah. like the Nobel Prize Committee definitely needed to keep that out of there for anyone to get like divisive with kind of how this came out. As right. A and it's it's kind of cool to see this winning now because like we've seen the models in our like, you know, early middle school science textbooks with like greenhouse gas effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we all learn it and we draw it and like mm-hmm. I remember doing a project on it in middle school in my geography class. Yeah. Like or you make terrariums and you learn how it works. And these are the me- these are the researchers who kind of like put a name and a, a formula to it. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what the Nobel Prize is. It's like you you learn all this stuff throughout mm-hmm. school, and now you're finally like they are getting validated. So it's like we just give you the prize. Now this is actually what we're validating. Yeah. You don't need to question it. Let's move on to the next one. We're going to validate next year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So those were our science prizes for the year. Um, we're really excited to come back from our hiatus. We're hoping to keep it regular now. We'll yeah, see. Keep it regular. <laughs> put some fiber in this podcast. <laughs> um, um, and we're going to go back to doing a little bit of model organisms. Yeah. Um, kind of talking to you about those. We will do an extended episode on our model organism on yep. worms. Yep, we we'll have a few have. guests for that. 
Um, and hopefully, one of these days, we will actually interview our PIs. Um, so tune in for if that ever happens, <laughs> if we actually get around to asking them. Um, all right, so we're going to do the rigmarole and ask you to rate, review, and subscribe. Hit that smash subscribe button. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, please, you know, on the Apple Podcasts, if you listen on Apple give us five stars drop just like give us just say hi in the review like you don't actually have to review it mm-hmm. um we are on apple spotify stitcher google all of it yeah follow us on our socials at incubation underscore time we're on instagram and twitter um we do episode updates on there and then we have a website uh which will which is linked on our socials as well so feel free to visit that um yeah we're grateful that you guys are listening and that you've stuck with us through this random hiatus where we didn't even tell you we were having a hiatus. We're just busy. <laughs> we also had the three-minute thesis we put on for our whole university. Oh, yeah, so we didn't really talk about that. That is like, that took up a lot of our time. But yeah, we're back. <laughs> we're back and we're excited to put out more podcast episodes. So you had something incubating? And we have filled your time. This is Incubation, incubation Time. I actually forgot the tune of our song. Yeah, so did I.